Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest today is Stu Fenton, a one-time cult model and male escort. 20 years ago, Stu and I happened to meet at a Fire Island pool party. I chatted with him, took some photos of him at the end of our conversation, and we lost contact. In the last couple of years, we reconnected on Instagram, and it became clear that his life is so fascinating that we need to share it with our audience. Stu became a cult model, and then an escort, and then slid into drug addiction, went through a year of rehab, cleaned himself up, and decided to become a counselor, therapist, psychiatrist. He works at a LGTB chemsex addiction facility in northern Thailand and manages its patient ward. Stu, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. To kind of set the stage for how your life went down the path that it did, can you give us a little idea of where you were raised and what your childhood was like, et cetera? Well, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a fairly middle-class Australian family, you know, in the country on a farm outside Melbourne and went to school just like every other kid. It was a bit of a redneck city that I grew up in, so I couldn't wait once I finished school to get out of there and travel overseas. And I was an exchange student in Norway for a year, which was very exciting. Got to travel around Europe and see the world, which was great. And then when I came back to Australia, I sort of, you know, tried to find my way doing English degree at university, but it wasn't for me. So I I got into acting and auditioned for the top acting school in Australia. Ended up going there with Tony Collette and Kate Blanchett and, you know, people that are quite well known today. But I didn't make it through acting school. So I left there and I. I tried to, oh, I went to London to uh, try and continue acting. And, um, you know, it was over there that I sort of discovered ecstasy for the first time and got introduced to to clubbing and big nightclubs like the Fridge in Brixton. And gosh, I can't remember that now. It's so long ago. But yeah, that was a very exciting time. That was around 91, 92, 93. And how old were you? Uh, I was uh, 22, 23. So I was, you know, it was my second time living overseas, but it also come out when I was 21. And while I was acting school, I came out. There was a bit of a difficult episode because my parents weren't very cool with it. They were had a bit of a struggle with it. But, you know, I think what happens for a lot of Australian kids, especially those gay guys, is that they really get their chance to be liberated when they move overseas. You know, a lot of uh, Aussie gay guys find their way to the US, to New York or LA, or they go to, a lot of them go to London and, and Europe. So that was definitely a time I really started to explore my sexuality and and also explore drugs, I guess. So how did you get into that more deeply? Well, if, I guess I was very, I wouldn't say I was very anti-drugs. It just didn't really seem to interest me that much. And then when I was in the UK, I had a boyfriend there who, he was about five years older than me, and he was just discovering ecstasy and cocaine and stuff like that. And basically, he introduced me to it. I mean, in fact, the first time I took ecstasy was very romantic. We were in this massive Hertfordshire mansion with about eight close friends, and we had a, you know, major dinner. And it was it was just like one of those beautiful houses you'd see in a movie or something. And then after we finished the main course and the dessert, we all popped an ecstasy. And, you know, he'd wanted me to try ecstasy with him for a long time. And I did. And it was an amazing, wonderful experience the very first time. And then that relationship didn't work out. But I was sort of off and on my way then, quite happily going out to nightclubs in 
in London taking um, ecstasy. But for me, that's all it was. Other people were taking speed and MDMA, and I was quite happy just taking one or two ecstasies a night. And I did that until I was 24 and went back to Melbourne. And then when I was back in Melbourne, I guess I experimented a little more. You know, the dance party scene in Australia was expanding like it was in the US with Mardi Gras and Sleazeball and there was a lot of smaller circuit parties in Melbourne. So I started going to those more. But by the time I was 26, 27, Melbourne felt like it was a bit of a small city for me. So I ended up, everyone wanted to move to Sydney at that point in time. That's where there were more gay people. That was where there were more gay tourists coming through from, you know, the US. You know, everyone loved the US gay men. And so I thought I was probably going to hopefully find myself a husband there. So uh, I moved up to Sydney and I was working as a personal trainer and that's when I met Robbie. He was like an escort and he took a lot of drugs and, you know, I fell in love with him and he introduced me to escorting. He introduced me to speed and intravenous using of speed and and other drugs. And, and, you know, basically I gave up my job as a personal trainer and I started full-time escort work. I mean, the main reason I did the escort work is not so much that I needed the money, but I just was, I wanted to be with him and I I was worried I would get jealous with him having all these escort clients. And I thought if I was doing it too, I wouldn't get jealous, which kind of worked fairly well. But then that relationship didn't work out and that's when my drug use escalated. Before you go any further, we have discussed this, but I'm kind of curious what was it like, Escort? I, I think I would be so intimidated by the situation. How did that happen for you? Look, I think I was kind of lucky in a way because this boyfriend, he was quite encouraging of me to do it. And so he set me up with some of his easiest clients in the beginning that were very straightforward and not intimidating and that, that kind of thing. So, you know, it actually really wasn't that hard. And you know, obviously, most of the time, the the clients are not the kind of people that I'd actually be sexually interested in. But I don't know, I think, you know, part of it was the money was very good. And so that was quite an incentive. And for me, I've never really had a problem getting a hard on in any given situation. So that part was easy enough as well. You know, I guess I used to just think of the money and try and be as polite and friendly as I possibly could. And, you know, I guess what I discovered too is that a lot of these people are very lonely and they they really struggle to get sex. And so, you know, it, it, it wasn't just about the money sometimes. It was actually just about listening to people and helping people and, and being there for people as well. So in a way, you're really in a service profession. You were being, you're, <laughs> you're take, taking care of them, right? <laughs> I guess I've come full circle. It's just that I, I don't offer the sex anymore. <laughs> the the no. other thing is that I find amusing, and I'm curious about your perspective on this. In the straight world, if a guy were to tell his friends he was a porn star or an escort, in general, it probably has a negative connotation and you're thought of less highly. But in the gay male world, it seems like the whole idea of knowing or being with someone who's a friend who's a porn star or an escort or some part of that industry, there's almost like an elevated cachet. Would you agree? Did you find that experience when you were doing it? I do. I totally agree. And, you know, you asked before how if it was hard to do when when I was 27. And I think a lot of gay men hit their kind of physical and sexual peak between 27 and 33. And so that's where I was. 
it was kind of exciting to be known to be, you know, the guy going out with this other guy and that we were both escorting and people were talking about us. And it, it was a kind of um, status thing, you know, for me at least. And I think, too, it is still that today as people always say, are you a porn star? And they ask those kind of questions as if you're a famous Hollywood star. And I do think we have a big history, don't we, in the gay community of Jeff Stryker and Ken Riker. And I mean, that's as far back as my memory goes. But but the porn, the gay porn actors were famous. And, you know, all through the late 90s and early 2000s, porn stars were very held in very high regard. And and I guess in a sense, you were talking before about me doing cult. Some people would have said to me over the years, oh, how did you ever have the courage to do that? You know, get a hard on and do pictures in front of the camera that everyone's going to see. But I guess part of it is I know I'm a bit of an exhibitionist anyway. So that's very helpful. For me, it was very exciting. And, and I have said this to you on other occasions. You know, I grew up in a family where my dad never gave me a lot of attention and was very emotionally and physically unavailable. So I believe a lot of my sort of exhibitionistic streaks and the desire I get from being validated and what, you know, led me to doing cult was about getting the attention and the validation that I had never got in my, you know, growing up. I think coming back to what you were saying about escorting, I do think in the gay community, whether it's healthy or not, the escorts and porn stars are held in some sort of high regard. Well, for the audience's sake, to go a little bit deeper into our meeting, we were both at a birthday party in Fire Island for DJ Michael Fearman in a late August afternoon in 1999. And I saw you lying on a chaise lounge a little bit off to the side by yourself. And I thought, Boy, that guy's hot. He, for the audience's sake, I'll describe you, and we'll have those photos that I took that day up on our website so they can get a, a perspective on what I'm talking about. But you were this blonde, muscular, you know, beefy, big-thighed guy who, when I walked over and started chatting with you, had this, you know, for Americans, very sexy Australian accent. And we chatted for 10 minutes or so. At the end of which I said, would you mind if I took a couple of photos? He said, sure. And that's it. That was our contact for 20 years. And then uh, in the last year or so, we were reconnected after I posted those photos on my Instagram page. And I found out about your history. And you told me about everything we're talking about today. And I thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing arc. What a, what a kind of a traditional Greek classic rise, fall, and then, <laughs> and then redemption. You know. So there we are in 99. At that point I met you, what was going on? Well, it was a very powerful moment, actually, that you met me, although at the time I wouldn't have known it, but I, I can see it now in ret retrospect. I had, um, you know, I talked a bit earlier about the boyfriend that I met that led me into escorting. And, you know, in order to get over that relationship, when what I know now is I had no ability to deal with my feelings of jealousy and pain and anger and everything so I basically took off to America for three months at that time in 99 to get away from that relationship and to try and heal myself but you know <laughs> I obviously New York was the place to go to it was the funnest place on the planet for gay men and so that's where I went and I ended up in Fire Island 
And I think, you know, it's interesting too, because I, I know we're going to talk a little bit probably in this podcast about what is addiction, but that was the beginning point of my descent into addiction. And to get over that relationship, my, my use of crystal meth and GHB and ecstasy had escalated. And I actually remember that summer up until that point, I used to like taking ecstasy, but ecstasy completely stopped working on me. I could take 10 ecstasy tablets over a Saturday night and not even feel it. And so at that point was where I started, really used a lot of GHB and crystal meth. And so at Fire Island that summer, three men died of a GHB overdose and GHB was getting a lot of bad press. So that I think I was on Fire Island for four or five days that summer. And, you know, I was using GHB and I was passing out at parties and that time you caught me, I was probably in a more, in a more composed fashion, but I was slowly losing my grip, to be honest. From there, I went to Montreal after that that summer, and I started studying at McGill for a year. And every time I came down to New York to party, I would end up overdosing on GHB or crystal meth. And my drug addiction was just getting worse and worse. I was working as a stripper in Montreal to, to help pay my way through my um my my bachelor's degree that I was studying there. You know, I think what began as me using drugs to deal with my painful emotions about this breakup then started to become something that I used all the time. And everyone was doing it at that time. Everyone, GHB was this new drug everyone was taking to have sex. And, you know, I remember thinking, God, I'm such a, a sex pig and I do all these things that I couldn't normally do without drugs. And guys think I'm really hot if I'm getting fucked or just being really crazy and part of me really loved that part of me really loved the being uninhibited about it and so the more validation and attention I got and the more pain I felt about the relationship the more drugs I took and I was just in this downward spiral which you know culminated at the end of that year with me returning to Australia with a pretty hefty drug problem a couple of things just that came to mind while I was listening to you. Number one, were you stripping at campus, the popular <laughs> strip bar in, in Montreal? I was. <laughs> yes. I, used to, I used to go there, loved it. And Maybe. secondly, <laughs> secondly, um, I was living in Tokyo in 98, 99. And the first time I ever did a G was in 98, around the time you were doing it. But ironically, it was a bunch of straight models that one was living with me for a while and he had all his friends come over and party. And back then you could get the ingredients through the Internet and mix it yourself. So, <laughs> yes, we, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. So we kind of had the similar experiences at the same time. I've been to campus yeah. and I did GHB around the same time you first did. So basically yeah. you're starting to lose your grip on your reality. Um, where did it go from there? Well, like I said, every time I went from Montreal down to New York for the Black Party or I think I went down to Hotlanta or I went to L.A. for the President's Day weekend, like uh, someone heard about, you know, me doing cult. And so they flew me to Los Angeles to to dance at uh, some circuit party there. And but every single time I would go to the U.S. to one of these parties and I actually had two friends who were like my partners in crime, Jack and Bobby. And uh, Bobby died a few years ago from drugs and Jack's gone off the radar as well. I feel like I'm the only one last one standing, but we would go to all these parties. We would take heaps of ecstasy and G and crystal meth. And, you know, every time I would, I would 
I would overdose. I mean, that was, I just got a really bad reputation for overdosing on GHB. People were, wor- I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty lucky I lived. I mean, the worst, probably the worst weekend was the 2000 black party at Roselands in New York. Well, that must have been about February or March that year. I went fully dressed up in leather. I was having a good time. I, I took a dose of G and had a horrible overdose. And the next thing I woke up in hospital in New York and, you know, I had a catheter in my penis and I was rigged up on all these electrodes and stuff. And, you know, basically the nurse said, you nearly killed yourself. You know, I I couldn't get out of the hospital fast enough. A few days later, I think I nearly did the same thing again. I was so out of control. And so, yeah, it was pretty frightening. Amazingly, I finished and passed all my subjects in my degree in McGill. I came down to New York and I, had, I went with my friend Bobby to um, whatever that big circuit party is in Washington, D.C., Cherry or something? Yeah, ch- the Cherry Blossom. I, I forget what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. So I went there and, you know, but I just felt like I was getting very paranoid, too, which I think was a result of the crystal meth. And I started having drug induced psychosis each time I used it and. And probably the worst incident that happened, which that whole year culminated in, was I went to the West Side Club. I did a whole lot of crystal meth and G. I went home with a guy. I remember we were sitting on his bedroom floor and he was, you know, he had this, all these leather and fetish gear. And the next thing I thought he was talking in code to me. And it's weird when you don't, haven't had psychosis before, because you just don't know what's going on. But I know now in retrospect that you just lose touch with reality. I thought I had to respond to everything he said to me in some sort of code language. And I kept on trying to get it right. And he would always look at me with this weird look on his face. And eventually he walked me to the door and sort of kicked me out. And uh, I got in the taxi with a guy and I thought the taxi driver said to me, you fucking freak. And I said, what did you just say? And he said, where do you want to go to? And I'm like, so I was really losing my grip. He took me to the address I had to go to. I had this major psychotic episode. You know, I went into the house and there were these fluorescent African face masks swirling around on the walls. My friend Bobby, uh, we were sharing a bed at the time. I crawled into bed with him. He turned around. He had this horror mask on his face. I jumped out of the bed, ran into the living room. He ran after me. And, you know, everything was like a nightmare. That's what psychosis is. It's like being in your own nightmare. And it took me three days to get through that psychosis. I fled the house. I thought Bobby was trying to kill me. I walked the streets of New York in these big high-heeled cowboy boots till I had blisters all over my feet. I'd shoot a, a huge blister into my lip. You know, I didn't sleep. I thought everyone was trying to film me on the streets of New York. Every time a helicopter went over or a siren went past, I hid in someone's back garden. It was a nightmare. And eventually I... I don't know how it happened. I knocked on the door of a friend and I basically collapsed. And the next thing I woke up maybe 24 hours later and I'd come out of the psychosis and he was just looking at me going, fuck Stu, what are you, what, what are you doing to yourself? It was shortly after that, two weeks after that, I had another incident at the West side club where I overdosed on GHB. I got carted out of the West. This is very embarrassing. Carted out of the West side club at, I don't know, 8 a.m. when everyone's going to work, put on the wheelchair, winched up into the back of an ambulance. And the um, ambulance officer was trying to ask me questions. It was such a strange experience. Every time I tried to answer the question, I would just say my address. 
he was asking me what's your name and i was telling him my address it was like the the my brain was not connecting with my mouth long story short i ended up in hospital again i discharged myself i had to catch a flight to london to see my ex i oh we had a such a long story i don't know if this is interesting for you but we ended up having a a sex party that night and i woke up at about 6 a.m i had an 8 a.m flight or something everyone else had passed out at the party i knew i had to get to the airport I just threw all my stuff in a bag. I don't know whether I had drugs on me or not. Took a taxi to the airport, got on the plane and went to London. And mid-flight, I went into psychosis again. But I mean, I wasn't a violent psychotic. I was just mumbling to myself and, you know, imagining things were happening that they weren't. And when I arrived at Heathrow, I basically got lost in the airport. And I think the uh, airport officials found me. They rang my friend, Robbie, who came to pick me up. I spent three days in London in psychosis and eventually somehow I called my parents and said, please get me home. I'm a mess. They brought me home. And then I really spent the next two years working out how to get sober. And it was it ended up being a six year ordeal. I've just given you the very short version. Well, before I go into the whole process of rehab and cleansing and becoming drug free, you mentioned to me previously that you had these kind of episodes, either ending up in hospital overdose, passed out and almost killing yourself or psychosis, maybe not even getting to a hospital. How many times do you think that happened over what period of time? And then after you share that, what do you think it was that caused you to keep going back to it when you had such negative experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think I I really think that I probably overdosed on GHB maybe 30 or 40 times and in the lead up to getting sober and I also think I must have had about 50 psychotic experiences too which is the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced in my life so it's a good question why would you go back to that everyone always asks what addiction is and it's pretty hard to pin down I mean working as a addiction specialist I guess over the last 15 years I the best that I can come to is I do think that some people grow up in families where they get the right affirmations and nurturing and boundary setting and parents that give them appropriate time attention and direction and and then I think there's a degree of people and and I'm not just talking about drug addicts so it could be people who are addicted to sex or love addiction or it could be reputation or it could be people who are addicted to exercise and bodybuilding and there are so many process addictions too but I do think that there's a a seeking for some sort of shortcut to pleasure or relief that a certain kind of person takes. I I do love my mum and dad very much, but I do also know that my dad was completely unavailable in my upbringing and emotionally, physically, in every way. And I also had a very critical mum. So I think those things played a lot into what happened to me and my development. And I think that what happens is when I I think growing up, I, I had many addictions like to my favorite TV programs, coming home from school and just watching TV for two or three or four hours. And, you know, sugar I got addicted to and probably masturbation at a certain point in time. And, and then as I got older, you finding sex and crystal meth and GHB, this was the ultimate relief and the ultimate pleasure. And you know, as I said before, I, the guy that I met, Robbie, when I was 27, he was sort of the the portal or the, the trigger that led me into addiction. But 
you know, once I'd sat in rehab for a year and done a lot of groups and a lot of work on myself, I do think ultimately probably grew up with quite low self-esteem. I, I really, um, really, really craved validation and being seen from my dad never really being available for me. And, and I, I've said to you before, you know, one of my other original addictions, I think, was validation. Like I said, I remember going to gay clubs for the first time and seeing people take their shirts off. And, you know, I got to the gym pretty quick and built my body up. And the first thing I loved to do was get in the nightclub and take my shirt off and just really thrive on the attention and the compliments from from people. And that obviously went to the extreme of taking steroids and getting massive and, you know, getting that body that allowed me to, you know, do the cult pitches eventually. And I think, and I mean, not, I don't think that this is uncommon. I mean, look at the amount of porn stars we have. I think that's a form of getting validation and attention and being seen. And, you know, I think that by the time I ended up in the US and doing cult and whatever, it was like all that attention that I'd never received from my father and, and that acknowledgement and affirmation that I never got from him. I went out into the gay world trying to get that from men, basically, whether that was by my sexual behavior and, you know, uh, or whether it was the seductive leather leather gear that I would wear or having my ass out you know in leather at parties and getting high and being very sexual with people and you know a lot of this stuff still goes on today but for me that's what I think it was and I, I do think in the gay scene there are a lot of people with not everyone but a lot of people with low self-esteem and everyone's trying to find a shortcut to feel good about themselves or to feel better about themselves. So but after you had 30 overdoses and a similar number of psychotic breaks. What keeps bringing you back? Are you trying to numb yourself? Are you... Well, well, I mean, you know, like I, I said before, I, I got sober through a 12-step program, and one of their key sayings there is, uh, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing and expecting different results. And I was a classic example of that which was, you know, thinking, because obviously the things that I always remembered about GHB and about Crystal was the first few times I used them where nothing went wrong, where, you know, the sex was amazing or I didn't go psychotic. And this is very true of most addicts is the first few times you use it or even the first few years you use it, you don't have problems. It's always fun, fun, fun. And, you know, I talk to a lot of gay guys these days on the gay scene. You know, I've been talking to a few guys this I get I get a lot of attention from 28-year-olds and 25-year-olds, and the thing that they all seem to have in common is they all love going out, taking drugs every weekend with really very little consequence. And, and so I think that's how it happens for most gay guys. But I think as you get older, and, you know, remember this happened to me when I was 30, 31, 32, where it all started to go down the plug hole. But by the time that happens, you're really addicted to it. And it's and all I re could remember is the good times. And there was an insanity in me which was going, it's okay, I'll control it this time. I won't take as much G. Or if I take sleeping tablets or Valium out with me, the minute I start to feel psychotic, I'll take them because that'll even me out. So and this is very common too for a lot of addicts. There's a bargaining period where when things start to go wrong, you try every way, shape and form to make it not go wrong until the evidence is stacked up against you. And you just go, which is the point that I eventually came to where I just went every single time I use drugs, something goes wrong. 
I get myself into the shit somehow. And that's when I had to go to rehab was basically to unlearn that link between, well, to learn that it's not like it is when I was when I was 27, 28, where I could use drugs and have a really good night out. Usually what it is now, I use drugs and I go psychotic or I use GHB and I end up in emergency. And so rehab, in a sense, was day after day repeating and burning new neural pathways that said, when I use drugs, bad things happen. I must not use drugs. Basically, that's that was the answer for me. That's not the answer for everyone. I hope that makes sense. That's yes, the reason uh, I so go back. So you went into rehab in what year? 2003. And if I recall correctly, did you go in for a period, come out and then relapse and go back in? Yeah, I mean, most people who try to conquer addiction, they just want to do the minimum. So I went to a 28-day program first, and I stayed sober after I came out of there for five and a half months. But prior to that, I'd even been part of a 12-step program for a year and a half. So I had done quite a bit of work and work with a therapist. But yeah, I relapsed after five and a half months. And at that point, I said, that's it. I am going to go to any lengths to get sober because psychosis is going to kill me or GHB is going to kill me. So I enrolled in a long-term therapeutic community, a public one in Australia, and I ended up doing both those rehabs in 2003. So I, I ultimately spent 11 months in treatment. You know, I always kind of describe drugs, among other phenomena, as a gay male rite of passage. It seems like almost everybody, although not everyone, comes to it, is faced with the peer pressure, wants to fit in, goes through a period of experimenting with drugs. Some, like me, I just don't have an addictive part of my, of my physiology. Kind of do it here and there as they like. Uh, some do it for a while and emerge and never do it again. And others somehow get trapped in this cycle and seem to have an addictive response. What's your view of why some people fall prey to this and others don't? Um, well, I think it's a bit of what I spoke about before. I do think it's really important for people to grow up with very strong, healthy attachment figures like mum and dad and and them being really available for you growing up. So I think um, family of origin can have a bit of an impact on it. But the reason why different people choose different addictions is that's a curious one because my brother also grew up, you know, with the same parents, but he's not a drug addict. But, you know, I would say he's a serious um, probably love addict or codependent to his partner. So his his uh, addiction of choice is very different to mine. You know, it may be just that I I came up, I grew up in the gay scene. He didn't. I came into contact with GHB and crystal meth and, you know, had a fun time and, and that happened. But I, I mean, there's different schools of thought on this. Some people think it's, it's a, it is a disease, you know, and some people think it's um, something that happens in the brain and that causes people to become addicted. I, I mean, if I'm really honest with you now that I've been a therapist for a very long time, my philosophy more is these days is it doesn't really matter what caused it. It's more about what you want to do about it. And my favorite saying when I was getting sober is, if you're on fire, do you run around and say, who set me on fire? Why am I on fire? Or do you just put it out first? And of course, you would just put it out first. And then if it's of interest to you later on, you can go and find out. And that's definitely an, an analogy I apply to addiction. Like, 
I've heard so many different reasons why people are addicts. And for me, I, it, it really doesn't matter anymore why I'm an addict. It's why, what I want to do about it. And, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I hear every year of so many gay men dying from drug addiction and mental health problems and all this sort of thing. I really, I'm, I really don't care too much anymore to work out what creates an addict. I just work on trying to help people. I mean, there is definitely value in you asking the question, though, because I think I want to work with LGBT people into the future. And, and the big important question is, if we can find out where it, what causes addiction, then we should go back and stop it back there so it doesn't continue to happen. But I just don't know if that's too big a uh, task to take on board. Speaking about your upbringing and your brother having this, being in the same family and not having the same path of addiction, I've done some reading and they, they kind of describe the, that as micro environments. You may be in the same family but you each occupy your own specific reality and your own specific relations with the others in your family. So you're not necessarily going to have the same experience or same outcome. So it's pretty understandable. The other thing yes. you and I were speaking about before we began the interview, and I'll just briefly uh, allude to this and, and then we'll kind of bring it to a, to a close in a moment. Bammer is attempting to create community, initially gay male community, but gradually LGBT community through storytelling and the sharing of experiences. But we also are contemplating and in discussion with a couple of millennials to maybe come up with a set of principles or a code that we might pledge to live by in, in, in concept. We're not gonna be enforcing it. It's just, if you believe in this, you might wanna sign this, this uh, charter. And one of those things would be taking care of each other. And one opportunity to do that is when you're out and you see peers at a dance or a party on drugs and overdoing it. And you can tell when it's excessive a lot of times. And what you might do in those kind of situations is find that person's friends and alert them and say, you need to take care of this guy and make sure he doesn't do any more. Or if there aren't friends around, maybe you need to be an upstander rather than a bystander and actually involve yourself and take that person and bring them over to a water fountain and sit down with them or find, a, find an authority figure. But in any event, to help us help ourselves because the damaged child that you referred to from our upbringings where we don't always get the right amount of love and attention is not always taken care of. And as you said, some of the outcomes are people being killed. What are your thoughts about, do you think it's worth trying to develop some kind of informal principle that we as a community ought to look out for each other in those circumstances? Yeah, I absolutely do. And, you know, I, I as I said to you before, I, this is something I've been thinking about recently, you know, when I move on from my current job, because I think the crystal meth GHB dilemma and is exploding in um, the UK and Europe. And I'm going to the um, Paris Chemsex conference this week um, to hear what, you know, what's happening at the front line on all this. And I would really love to be part of something that is bringing awareness to gay men about how we treat each other. And there is actually a, a guy in London called David Stewart, who I think he's, he's already thinking about this. And he puts out a lot of video clips on Facebook and stuff. Some really interesting stuff about how we can be kinder to each other on the dating apps and, you know, in nightclubs and stuff like that. And I also... There's been a big fetish party in Belgium this past weekend, and one of these young gay guys I know sent me a message at lunchtime today and said, I, I saved someone's life last night, and I said, what happened? And he said there was a young 
guy overdosing on GHB and everyone was pushing him around and making fun of him and whatever. And he said he, he grabbed him and led him away from this crowd and took him to the ambulance. And the guy was like already throwing up and the ambulance really flew into action to save this guy's life. And I mean, what I'm talking about is exactly what you're talking about. We've got a, a gay brother on the dance floor who's having a big problem with drugs and people are not over, not concerned about him. They're making fun of him and his predicament. And, you know, this is kind of shocking, really. When you think about all the sort of brotherhood and the solidarity that we created during the, the AIDS epidemic and where we are now, where where this sort of thing is happening. And I'm surrounded by this stuff. Uh, another young gay guy I know messaged me only five days ago and said his best mate had gone missing and that eventually they contacted the police and then they eventually found that he had overdosed on GHB and crack at, you know, at a sex party and somewhere in London. And I would, I would stagger to imagine how many gay men die each week so young. I wonder too whether it almost matches the, the AIDS epidemic sometimes because I'm hearing these stories so frequently I totally agree with you. I think something needs to be done where there's an awareness brought to the whole LGBT community about let's take care of each other. Let's look out for each other, for sure. Uh, I've always kind of thought and described uh, a young gay man experimenting with drugs as almost an unavoidable rite of passage. And what you're basically telling me is, unfortunately, not everybody everybody makes that passage successfully. And so, you know, how do we how do we stop these tragedies from happening. Um, you know, Stu, this has been a fascinating conversation. I hope the listeners will feel the same way. I think we should stop here, and I want to thank you for your time, and we continue with the second half of your life in our next episode. Sounds wonderful. It's been great talking to you, Mike. Okay. Great to reconnect. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks a lot. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more stories, go to bammer.co.